I'm going to have you not turn this morning to Ezekiel 37. (laughs) We are finished that phase. Well, we could have stayed in it for longer, but I just had a sense it's time to move into some other things. So turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. And I walked off this morning without my notes, so I have them in my phone. So if you look at me looking at my phone, I'm not playing a game. (laughs) I'm not texting my children. I'm trying to read these tiny little notes. (laughs) Praise God. Ephesians chapter 1. Paul's praying here. Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, verse 15, and the love of... Uh, for all your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, mention, making mention of you in my prayers. So what's about to follow is what he had prayed for them. We're only going to get to part of it. That the God of our, of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. We've talked about this before. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9, there are things that God has prepared for us that we cannot see, that have not entered into our eyes, that our eyes have not seen, our ears have not heard, nor has it entered into our heart all that God has prepared for those who love us. But it goes on to say, but His Spirit has been given to us to reveal them to us. So that tells us that there are things every time we come together... Every time you open your Bible, every time you get up every morning and you begin to talk to God, there are things that God wants to show you you've never seen before about Him and about who you are and about what He has for you, His will for your life. So so I've been doing this for 30-some years, and I'm still seeing things. I woke up the other morning, opened my Bible to Ephesians chapter 6, where I've been teaching for months on the armor of God, and saw something I've never seen before. Why? Because the Spirit of God... Open my eyes to see that. So that means there's things this morning we're blind to about God that we need Him to open our eyes to see. And that's why Paul is praying this. So he's saying, God, we need you to open our eyes to see things we've never seen about you before and about us. And this is is where we're headed with this. That the God of our Father... I know this so well in the New American Standard, so if I come out differently, that's why. Father, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. And this is what I wanted to start out with. That the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of His calling. Now, there's three two other things he says there. That's what we're going to begin to talk about. The hope of His calling for you. So turn with me to John chapter 15. John chapter 15. We're talking about vision. This is all about vision. Before we talk about the vision itself, we've got to talk about what our role in it is. Because otherwise we're just studying something that's kind of out there for other people. But vision is is personal to us. See, churches have vision, God has vision, businesses have vision, uh, uh, ministries have vision. But what God wants us to see this morning is that vision is not for an institution. It's a vision for you personally. God does things personally. Now, John 15, here's a, you might want to write this down because this is, you may never hear this anywhere else. John 15 follows John 14. Now, if you got that one, because there's another one 
that I got to give you if you're ready for it. And it's before John 16. Everybody got that now? All right, it's important. It is in a way. Because when this was written originally in the Greek language, when it was originally written by the Apostle John, he did not write it in chapters and verses. It was written basically as, a, as a, an account of what his recollection of, inspired by the Holy Spirit, of, his, of what his walk with Jesus. And he says at the end, I, I chose these things, I've done these things, that you might believe in him and who he is. But what we hear, see here is an account by someone that was there of the last instructions that Jesus gave to his closest innermost team before he's about to go to the cross and give his life up for them. Before He knows they're going to be scattered because it's prophesied in, in Jeremiah, I think it is, that they're going to be scattered. He knows what's going to happen to them. And this is his last meeting with them, his last meal. We call it the Last Supper. His last meal with them, his last opportunity before everything changes for them and for him, his last opportunity to minister to them, to speak to them, to encourage them, to give them direction, to tell them what it is they need. And he knows this is his last opportunity before everything changes. So these words are very important. When you've got your last words that you've got to choose before you leave your loved ones, you're going to choose them. It's what's deepest in your heart. So what everything he says in there is critical to what they need to know and what he wants them to know. So it's critical to us too. So that's what we're going to begin to talk about. John 15. There's so many things in here we could look at and talk about, but this is what we're going to pick up on, starting in verse 13. Greater love no one has than this, that he lay his life down for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. So there's going to be a change in our relationship. I have called you friends for all things that I've heard from my Father I've made known to you. And this is what I want you to see this morning. You did not choose me, but I chose you. Now, he's walked with them for about three and a half years. They didn't just have a, didn't work together and then go home at night. They lived together. And there were seasons where they may have gone home for periods of time. There's some evidence of that. And there were times he sent them out two by two to carry out, to teach, to do the things he taught them to do. That's part of training. You teach and then you have them do what you've taught them. That's what training is. And then they would come back. But essentially, they have been an inner core. He now had a larger group of 70 that followed him, and then the multitude that followed him sometimes, sometimes they didn't follow him. But this core group of 12 were with him all the time, were involved. If they were not with him, they were involved in what he was training and preparing them to do. And now at the end, he's bringing them back to tell them how they got there to begin with. So this must be crucial for them to understand. Why? Because everything's about to change. When everything's about to change, he's going back to the foundation by which they started. Ever notice that, that you know, you can be growing and growing along and you begin to think, you know, I'm getting somewhere. I'm beginning to do what the Word says to do. I'm beginning to trust God. And some crisis happens. And you find your head where your feet used to be and your feet where your head used to be. And you don't know how it happens. Have you ever found that when that happens, you tend to revert back to the way you used to do things? 
and find out you weren't quite as far along as you thought. Am, am I the only one that's ever had that experience? You're all looking at me like, what's wrong with him? <laughs> it's human nature. Because, you know, we're, we, we, we begin to act somewhere, but that doesn't mean it's solidly established in us yet. So under pressure, we'll revert back to where we really, what, what the foundation really is inside. They're about to go into a crisis. And they don't understand it. They've heard him. He's tried to prepare them for it for three years, and they still don't understand it. Because at the end, later on in John 16, I think it is, he's talking about this, and they still don't get it. Actually, when he was raised from the dead, they still didn't fully get it. It was only when they were filled with the Holy Spirit that they began to understand what had happened. Now, this is not just their leader. This is not just the Messiah. This is somebody who cares for them, who loves them. He's calling them his friends, and he's trying to prepare them so that what they're about to go through will not be any more traumatic than it needs to be, and so that they'll stay steady through falling apart. Told Peter in one account, he said, Satan has come to sift you. He actually came to sift all of them. He says, but I prayed for you. Isn't that nice to know he prayed him through that? So that when you come through it, you will turn and comfort the others. They're about to go through that crisis. Peter's about to go through the very crisis, the very sifting that Jesus was talking about and still thinks he's doing so well. So what does Jesus call them back to to prepare them? What does Jesus want them to understand so that in the middle of their darkest hour, when everything seems to be falling apart, they will have these words to come back to them. That's why the words you put in you are so important because it's it's in the crisis, in the midnight crisis, when the darkest time is coming, those words you put into you, the Holy Spirit will then pull up out of you what you need, but He can't pull up something you haven't put in. He can't pull up what you haven't put in. And that's why you can't wait to that darkest hour to pick your Bible up and dust it off and say, where do I need, what was he talking about last week? You need to put it in, sew it in all the time. Because you don't know what's coming up tomorrow or later today. That the Spirit of God, it says he will show you things to come, but he can't show you things you haven't put scriptures in to deal with. And so Jesus is sewing into them words that the Spirit of God will be able to call them back to. And one of those instructions, one of the things they needed to understand in order to go through this and and can fulfill the vision that he has for them is this revelation that you didn't choose me, I chose you. So we're going to talk this morning about what it means that he chose you. We can just run through this, yeah, he chose me, but I want to spend some time this morning just on what that means. Because it was important enough that Jesus spent time calling them back to something that they already knew in their head. If you had asked them that that day, you know, did did Jesus call you or did you call yourself? Oh no, Jesus called me. But it hadn't sunk down in. It needs to sink down in that you didn't choose him. He chose you. So he starts out by saying, that's Paul's prayer for them. We just started out with. Paul's prayer is that God would open the eyes of our understanding, that we would see the hope of his calling. A calling is a choosing. 
Now, I want to just read for you just quickly. There are a number of definitions I could read. I want to read for you a definition that I found in... This is several of them that I put together in, uh, in Webster's Unabridged Dictionary. To choose means to pick out by preference from all alternatives that are available. To pick out by preference from all alternatives that are available to select freely after consideration. Now let's think for a minute of what that kind of means. As I was praying about this on on Friday morning in here and the Holy Spirit was showing me this is where to begin, (laughs) I I was taken back to my childhood. When I was probably, I don't know, 12, 14 years old, I had a bunch of guys that would play ball and, and uh, you know, athletic types of things. And, and I was, uh, I've always loved sports, <clears throat> but I've not always been gifted enough to excel in them. And back in those days, I was a little bit, um, maybe you'd say chubby. I wasn't overweight, I was just not skinny. And I wasn't fast. I wasn't not coordinated. I just wasn't the fastest kid in the group. And so what kids would do is they'd get together to put together a basketball team or a, you know, just pick up game, basketball or, 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 or baseball, and you'd have captains or team leaders, and what they do is they'd line everybody up and they would choose their team. And you're standing there waiting to be chosen. And you're standing there, and the big guy who everybody knows is the fastest, he goes first. The, the captain's brother goes next. And you're going down the line, and you're kind of dawning on you. The alternatives are getting smaller, and you're still standing there. That can begin to affect you, especially when it happens every time. <laughs> And they kind of come and you're the last guy standing there and say, well, (laughs) each team looks at, all right, it's our turn to take you. (laughs) I remember that. It leaves an impact on you that you're not the highly, most highly regarded athlete in the community when you're not chosen. Because you see, when they got to the end and I'm the only one left, I wasn't chosen. Because to be chosen means you're selected out of other alternatives. This is what I want you to see. That means if there are other alternatives, the captain's decided I want you instead of them. But if you're the only alternative left, that also tells you something. That doesn't tell you whether you're wanted or not. It may be they had no choice. They had to take you. So that doesn't give you the greatest confidence when you're up to bat after everybody else is out. When, you know, when they need to put you in or you're sitting on a bench, it doesn't give you the greatest confidence. Because part of that definition, a key part of that definition, is to be chosen meant that they had other alternatives and they decided on you. The second part of that definition is that after careful evaluation, 
So that tells us when a choice is made, when a real choice is made, there's been some analysis and some evaluation done on which this decision is made to pick one and not the other. So when, we're, when they're told they're ch- he chose them, that automatically implies certain things that have happened. There were other alternatives. And in his evaluation, he decided that whatever, for whatever reason, it was you that he wanted. Now another aspect of being chosen has to do with the criteria that's being used to choose you, the standard that's being used to choose you. That standard's decided on by the one who makes the choice. So the one who makes the choice is the one who's decided that you qualify, not you. The one who makes the choice is responsible for the choice that's made, not you. When I was first saved, there was an expression came out. I don't, I've heard it was true. It was, it was this expression that was by a young kid who had caught the whole of the gospel. And he says, basically, God don't make junk. God doesn't choose junk. We're going to look at the choices that he made. But I want to start out by having us just slow down, think about what it means to be chosen. It means there were other alternatives that they had, and yet for whatever reason, he selected you and not others. It was after a careful evaluation. See, unless you understand this, you think you talked God into accepting you. See, we can sit in church and go, I know God chose me, but what is the real belief inside of you? Because that's how you act. Because see, if God, if I convince God to take me, then I'm not ultimately going to have confidence in that choice. Because what if He didn't really know me? What if I did a good job of selling myself? Have you ever gone in for an interview, job interview? That employer is going to make a choice. Whether to hire you, unless it's your, your father or your uncle, they're going to make a choice. And you prepare a resume, and you, you put that resume together. You may have even had help putting that resume together. And you wanted to cast you in the most favorable light because you wanted to choose you. I've been hired by law firms, and then I got into situations, and I wonder, oh my gosh, what did I get myself into? Do I really, can I really do this? Have I fooled them into thinking I can do things I can't do? I remember sitting one time in a, in a, in a senior partner's office, and he's talking to me about things I don't even understand what he's talking about, let alone what he wants me to do. You never get in that and the fear begins to rise up and you know you begin to perspire. 
you know, and your hearts begin to race. When that happens, your mind can't, I'm not, you know, I'm just taking notes. I have no idea what I'm taking down. Why? Because I lacked the confidence at that time to be able to do it, and yet I had convinced them to hire me. It's one thing with an employer, but we can have this subtle attitude. We've done that with God. Sometimes you hear it because you say, you will hear these things. Something may come out of our own mouth. Oh, God, would you please say that? They make a great Christian. You know what it takes to make a great Christian? You have to be a good sinner. (laughs) That's what qualifies you to be a Christian. That's what Romans 3 says. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have sinned. goes on to say that's what qualifies us to receive His grace. So you can't look at a, 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 an unsaved person that, boy, they make a great Christian. That for God, that's why you ought to save them. God doesn't save us because we're good people or bad people. He doesn't choose us because of anything about ourselves. When Tony Cook was here last year and, and was talking to the... Um, I, don't, I guess he probably shared it with the congregation on Sunday. He would go back to this story of one of these little cartoon quips of Dennis the Menace, who's coming away from Mrs. Wilson's house with a bag full of cookies. <clears throat> and his friend turns to him, and Dennis says, I think it is, I can't remember who said it. Dennis says, you know, boy, <clears throat> we must have been pretty good together. Look at all the cookies Mrs. Wilson gave us. And his friend says, we didn't get those cookies because we were good. We got those cookies because Mrs. Wilson's good. The book of Jonah is in there in large part for this lesson. Jonah was a Jewish prophet, Hebrew prophet, that God sent to Nineveh, which was one of the most ungodly cities on the face of the earth. Cruel, horrible people, horrible nation, horrible city. And God sent him to say the shortest sermon maybe ever preached. I get seven words. Get your house ready because you're going home. You're dying. God's judgment's fallen. And he didn't want to go. So you know the story. He got in a ship going the other direction. And the storm comes up. And he realizes I'm the reason for the storm. So they throw him overboard and a great fish swallows him. And when he's finally repented and gotten God's things right with God, the fish comes and spits him out going in the direction he's supposed to be going in to begin with. But the issue wasn't that Jonah was afraid. If you get to the end of the story, the issue was Jonah was afraid that if the Ninevites repented, God would forgive them. And that's exactly what happened. They repented, God forgave them, and Jonah goes and sits out on a hill and pouts. Because this ungodly people have been saved by a righteous God, forgetting that Israel has been unrighteous, and Jonah's been unrighteous, and he's been saved, forgetting it was God's grace and God's goodness that saved him. So when we start finding ourselves judging other people too quickly, when we hold things against other people and say, boy, they don't measure up, they should have done, we've forgotten where we've come from. Peter talks about that in 1 Peter 1 or 2 Peter 1, I can't which one it is. We've forgotten where we, from where we came from. That we were chosen. We didn't choose him. 
We were chosen. In fact, the Bible says in several places, when he chose you, you were his enemy. So how was I God's enemy? Because we were rebelling against his will. You may not have been saying nasty things about him. You may not have had hate pictures of him on your wall. But we were rebelling against his will. That made us his enemy. Romans 5 says God demonstrated his love for us. Didn't just feel it. He demonstrated his love for us. And yet while we were still sinners, 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 while we were still his enemies, Christ died for us. Jesus says, at some point, a, a, a great man will do things for his friends, and he may even come to the place of dying for him, but a great man's not going to die for his enemies. That's a level of love that's beyond human love, Amen. which is why he challenges us to love our enemies, to pray for those who despitefully use us, and, and do good things to those who persecute us. Why? That we may be like our Father who is in heaven. That's what he's done with us. That's why he's calling us now to be like him and to do with others what he's done with us. But we can get used to being a Christian. We can get used to progressing and growing. We can get used to those things and really begin to forget where we came from and begin to think we're in the church, we're in the will of God, we're growing with God because we somehow were smart enough to choose him. So Jesus is calling his disciples back to how this started to begin with. Not to condemn them, not to call them up short, because that's where grace begins. Freedom begins. Joy begins by knowing you didn't choose him. He chose you. And unlike the employers that I convinced to hire me, and the employers you've convinced to hire you, God knows everything about me. In fact, it says earlier in Ephesians 1 that he chose us before the foundation of the world. We'll end with that. Chose us before. So before the world was formed, God looked through the eternity of time, saw everything you've ever did, would do, everything you would ever say, and everything you would ever think, and still said, I choose you. So he wants them to know before they leave, before he leaves and everything changes, understand this. You're not in this because you chose me and convinced me to receive you. You're in this because I chose you. Now let's go over and take a look at his choosing them. Let's go look at Matthew 4. We're going to look at some of these choosings. Verse 18. Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him, 
Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother in a boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them, and immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. So here we see how Peter and how his brother Andrew received their their call, their choosing. He just came to them and said, follow me. Now if you go into Luke's account, Luke chapter 5, you see more detail. But I, I wouldn't want to go into that. But in Luke chapter 5, you see they were out fishing all night. They didn't catch anything. They came back. And Jesus said, go on out and cast your net out again. And Peter says, well, it's, you know, we fished all night. There are no fish out there. Nevertheless, it's your word. And when he comes back, they've got a boatload of fish. And he says, I'm a sinful man. Depart from me. And that's where Jesus chooses him at that point. And then Andrew, his brother. Let's go over to chapter 9. So he chose two fishermen. They were uneducated. They were rough. They were businessmen. Coarse in many ways. And yet he chose them. Verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew, or Levi, sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. This man's a tax collector. IRS. Except this was different. In those days, a tax collector was a... When the Romans came in, they had a method of governing that was different than other conquering nations. What they would do is they would come in and they would essentially let you self-govern. They would have a military presence there. They would have a military, they would have a governor, a military governor there. But as long as you managed your own affairs, they let you do your own thing. You could practice your own religion. You could run your own government. You could do whatever you want. And see, that required less effort on their part. Unless you got out of line. It was called the Pax Romana, the Roman, the Peace of Rome. And, and one of the ways they raised their revenue is instead of putting Roman tax collectors there, they would hire members of that community to collect taxes for Rome. So when they came into Palestine, they would hire or retain Jews, Hebrews, to collect taxes for Rome. And the way those tax collectors were compensated is they were authorized to collect whatever they wanted to, and Rome would levy what they wanted out of it, and whatever the tax collector could get out of you beyond that, he could keep. So you could imagine how beloved. I mean, tax collectors aren't particularly thought highly of anyway because they want something we don't want to give them. I know it's been a while since April 15th, but you know you can remember. Just look at your paycheck next week. But in this case, it was so much worse because it was one of their own who'd betrayed them to the Roman government and not just betray them, but was stealing money from you. So they were much hated. And Jesus comes to one of them, just sitting there, and says, you, tax collector, traitor, betrayer of your people, you, come, follow me. Now, notice, because we've talked about what it means to be chosen, it means... Out of other alternatives, you were selected. If we went back and looked at that story of, of Peter and Andrew and James and John, 
we would have seen there were many others there in that scene, but out of that scene he chose four. There are others in this scene, in fact, if we look on in this story, we'll see them. Verse 10, Now it happened as Jesus sat at a table in the house, that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. So not after he calls Matthew, Matthew, other accounts, Matthew took him to his house, they're sitting down to have a party with other tax collectors and sinners there. So Jesus chose him out of other tax collectors, other alternatives. Let's go over to John chapter 1. Verse 35, And again the next day John stood with two of his disciples, and looking at Jesus, he walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. Then two of the disciples, that's two of John's disciples, heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. So two of John's disciples now leave to go follow Jesus. Then Jesus turned, seeing them following, and said, Who do you seek? And they said, Rabbi, which means translated teacher, where are you staying? He said, Come and see. And they came and saw where he was staying and remained with him that day. Now it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. So we find out that he was also had been one of John's followers, who first found his brother, who had first found his brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ, and brought him to Jesus. Now when Jesus looked at him, he said, You are Simon, son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which means rock or stone. Verse 43, the following day, Jesus wanted to go up to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the... Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote Jesus of Nazareth the son of Joseph and Nathanael said can any good thing come out of Nazareth and Philip said come and see Jesus saw Nathanael coming and said to him behold an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit Nathanael said to him how do you know me Jesus answered and said to him before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree I saw you Nathanael answered and said to him Rabbi you surely are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. Here we see Jesus choosing some of his disciples. We don't have the account of all of them. But we see him choosing them out of a group. We see him, in some cases, like Nathaniel, he's struggling a little bit. Well, who is this guy? He doesn't fit the scriptures that he could remember of where he was supposed to. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Of course, he wasn't born in Nazareth. He was born in Bethlehem. And Jesus is revealing himself. See, Jesus knew Nathaniel, just like he knew you when he chose you. He's called them. He chose them. He called them. He chose them out of a group, out of a crowd, out of others. Now let's go to Luke chapter 6. If you read the whole context here, what you'll see is that there was a large multitude that followed him out of that multitude. There were about 70 that he considered his disciples. 
Verse 12. Now it came to pass in those days that he, Jesus, went out, went out to the mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. And when it was day, he called his disciples to himself. That's the 70. And from them, we're talking about alternatives, from them he chose 12 whom he also named as apostles. Now the difference between a disciple and apostle, disciple means a disciplined one, a follower, a committed follower. Discipline means learning to be like the one you're following. Apostle comes from a word that means a sent one. And it implies sent with a purpose or on a mission. So he's got this group of 70 that have come together around him. And he knows he needs to choose a smaller group to invest more time in because he's going to send them out on a mission. And so remember, to be chosen... To choose means you can, there are alternatives and you consider and evaluate the choices you have in order to make the choice you and not you. How did Jesus do this? He spent all night in prayer. Seeking the Father's wisdom of whom to choose. He didn't choose lightly. He didn't choose by outward appearance. He didn't choose by qualification because none of them qualified, at least in terms of the record that we know of them. I mean, look at some of them. Peter's a rough fisherman. We know by his track record he was always putting his foot in his mouth. He was bold and confident in himself. We know, we know that Andrew was cautious. We know James and John were full of fire. They were like fire down on heaven when people disagreed with Jesus. I mean, these were passionate, rough, uneducated men. In Acts it says they realized that these were untrained men, who, but they know they'd been with Jesus. See, that's the key. And so Jesus spends all night in prayer seeking direction from the Father of out of these 70, who to select or choose. Okay. And so he chose the 12. And it goes through and begins to list the 12, the apostles. Okay. Now, let's go back to John 15. We talked a little bit about what it means to be chosen. Let's see the other aspect of this. Why would he choose? We'll go back to verse 16. You did not choose me but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. Oh, wait a minute. We're not just chosen so that we can stand with this is the A team and this is the B team. See, when they finished choosing us as boys, we didn't just stand around and talk to each other. 
We were chosen because we were going to be part of a team that was going to do something. So the choice is made on the basis of a purpose. So he said, you didn't choose me, I chose you, but when I chose you, I appointed you to do something. What did he appoint us to do? What did he appoint them to do? And I appointed you that you should (laughs) go. Now that's just a simple two-letter word. But so powerful. So profound. I called you and I appointed you to go. What's the Great Commission? Go. Go implies some things. The first thing it implies is don't stay where you are. So if you're comfortable in your blue seat, go. Go implies that not only don't you stay where you are, you have a destination. You have a purpose. There's a focus. I don't find, and I haven't, I'll be frank with you, I've done a complete study. I don't find wherever he says go, there are conditions. But what if it's too hot? What if I don't like it? What if it's not comfortable? I don't find anywhere where he says If you don't like it, it's okay. He just says, go. Of course, there's the old quip, two-thirds of God is go. G-O. Go. You didn't choose me. I chose you that you would go and do what? Bear fruit. Now, he's just told them in the beginning of this chapter that he's the vine and they're the branches. And that you cannot bear fruit apart from the vine. And we've talked about this before because he begins by saying, Abide in me, and as you abide in me, basically, I'll bear fruit through you. So his desire, his will... For your life and my life is that He bears fruit through us. But that fruit doesn't do any good if we don't take it somewhere. That fruit doesn't do any good hanging on the vine. When it's ready, the vine dresser plucks it off, which requires some separation before that fruit's useful. So the fruit has to go somewhere. And he's telling them, I'm calling you back to when I first chose you. The reason I chose you was so that you could go and when you went to bear fruit. Now the fruit is him, Jesus. It's bearing him, his love, his grace, his his peace. His joy, His deliverance, His power, all of that is the fruit 
Just go to Galatians and you'll see the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering. All those are the fruit of the Spirit that He wants to develop in us. But it doesn't do any good if we don't go with it. So the whole point here, we're talking about vision, is God's vision starts with you and me. He's chosen you. He's chosen me. And He chooses carefully. He knows what He's choosing when He chooses us. Because we can be chosen and look at ourselves and say, are you kidding me? I can't tell the number of times I've had that conversation with Him. Don't you know? Yes, He does. Careful evaluation of other alternatives and He chose you. Careful evaluation of other alternatives and He chose you. But He chose you for a purpose that we might bear fruit and that your fruit would remain. That whatever you ask the Father in my name, He may give it to you. Now I sense a frustration among people, and sometimes I've been frustrated. Because a number of places in these scriptures where He's last instructions, He's telling His disciple, whatever you ask in my name, I'll do it. Ask the Father in my name, He'll do it for you. I won't ask for a show of hands because I don't want to embarrass me, <laughs> let alone you. But ask yourself, have I ever asked for something in His name and I didn't get it? Mm. Then did He lie? No. Maybe there's more to this. Because what he's, these are all tied together. You didn't choose me. I chose you. And here's why I chose you. I chose you so that you could go. So how many of us are going? Now, going doesn't mean leave the church and go to Africa or something necessarily. It means get out of your blue seat and do what you're supposed to do. Go and that you bear fruit and that your fruit remain that whatever you ask the Father in my name. So part of the fruit that's to be born in us is answered prayer. He's saying, go and bear fruit, and here's what I'm going to do to equip you to bear that fruit. Whatever you ask in my name... I'll do it. But he can't do it if we don't ask in his name. So this prayer of asking for things in his name is not just for us. It's so that we can go bear fruit. Part of going is praying. I remember when I was in this last law firm I was in, there was a lawyer I was kind of working on and trying to draw in and witness to and I had a little Bible study and most of it was the secretaries that came and this lawyer I think came once and I went into his office one day and he was just talking there was a need that he had I don't remember what it was I think it was physical need I think he had a I remember some knee or, or shoulder problem like that and I said well would you like me to pray for you he said yeah and so I went over to lay my hand see my instinct is I'm going to pray for something I'm going to do it now he thought I was going to pray for him the next time I went to church The look on his face was, we, we don't do this in law offices. I laid hands on him, I prayed for him, and just left, quickly. The next day he came and says, you know what? It's better. I said, see, God is real, and God answers prayer. so we're called we're chosen but we're chosen to bear fruit now 
Remember, we're chosen out of a group. Let's go and look verse 18. That's the good part. That's the exciting part. Verse 18. But if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before you. If you were of the world, in other words, if I'd left you in the world and hadn't chosen you out of it, then the world would love its own. See, we're, we're trying to live in two worlds. We're trying to be accepted by the world and accepted in, lo- in, in living Christ. You can't do it. It's like standing on a dock with one foot on the dock and one foot on the boat and they cast off. They're going in different directions. And, and guess what? If you stay in that position, you're not going to go in either direction. You're going... And it's very uncomfortable. He said, you are in the world and I chose you out of the world. That's why the world hates you. Because you remind the world of me. And they hate me. That's why the disciples would rejoice when they were persecuted. Because it was evidence that the world saw them like Jesus. And they considered that an honor, not a shame. Yet because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So we're chosen for a purpose, we're chosen out of the world, and therefore we're different from the world. Now let's talk very quickly about who God has chosen in the past. What, it, what the qualification to be chosen. He chose a man named Abram Abra and Sarai who were moon worshippers. But he chose them to form a nation that would be in covenant with him. He chose a man named Moses. Out of all the babies that were being sacrificed... He chose him. And he called him for a purpose. Moses grew up prideful, self-confident. And God chose him. And when God was finished with bearing fruit through him, he called him the most humble man on the earth. God calls the little boy named David, who was out tending his father's sheep, the smallest, the youngest, and the weakest of all of Jesse's sons. But God chose him because God knew his heart, not his outward appearance. God chose a man named Gideon to deliver them from, to, to, to deliver them from the Midianites. And where God found Gideon was hiding in a winepress because he was afraid of the Midianites that he was called to deliver from. We've looked at some of the apostles that God chose. So God doesn't choose based on our qualifications. Let's look at what God chooses based on. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 1. Verse 26. For you see your calling, brethren... So Paul's calling them back to their calling. Not many of you 
were wise according to the flesh. Not many of you were mighty, not many noble of you were called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world, in other words, the things that in the world's eyes are foolish, to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty. And God has chosen the base or the insignificant things. And the things which are despised, God has chosen. The things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. Why? So that no flesh would glory in His presence. The battle that we always have in our humanity is that when we start dealing with a calling, is our first instinct is to look at ourselves and to say, I can't do that. (laughs) But I've learned this. Unless I have that thought, I can't do it, I haven't seen what He's called me to do. Because if I think I can do it, I'll try to do it. Notice the people we've listed. Moses, Abram. You know, we think him as the father of faith, but you need to go back and read his story. He didn't exi- was not exactly a stellar example of it for quite a period of time. He laughed at God when God called, told him what he'd been called him to do. His wife laughed at him, at God, and then lied about it. They tried to help God out with Ishmael. Moses, as I said, became proud, confident, because he was raised in Pharaoh's court to be Pharaoh. And God had to get all of that out of him. He had to bring him to nothing. He had to reveal his weaknesses. He had to reveal what he could really do on his own. And when Moses came to the end of what he could do, then God could begin to work in him what he could do. You didn't choose me. I chose you and called you that you might go, appointed you, that you might go, and that when you go, that you bear fruit, and that the fruit you bear remain. Faith Christian Center, that's our calling. We've been chosen. We've been chosen. Turn with me, the last scripture we're going to look at. Turn with me to 1 Peter. This is who you are. This is who I am. This is who Faith Christian Center is. First Peter chapter 1. First Peter two, verse nine. This is us. This is the God's vision of us. You are a chosen generation. The word chosen there is the word eclectos which means to be picked out from among another group. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, 
King James says a peculiar people. That doesn't mean weird. It means special. A special people. What makes us special? Is it the music we have? Is it the anointing we have? Is it the, is it the beautiful building that we have? Is it, the, is it each other? No, no. What makes us special is He chose you. See, what made, what made those other guys on the team special is they, they were chosen. What made me feel not so special? I wasn't chosen. I was left over. You are not a leftover. You are chosen. We are a chosen generation. A royal priesthood. A holy, that means set apart, people. A special, peculiar in the sense of special, selected, People, why? Why are we chosen? Why are we a priesthood? Why are we a holy nation? Why are we a special people that we may proclaim the praises of Him who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light? Once you were not a people together, but now you are the people of God. There's another one of those little words, of, O-F. It means belong to. These are my glasses. They're not Walmart specials. They're, they were, they, the prescription was designed for me, for my eyes. So if you try to wear them, they won't do you any good. Because they're my glasses. They belong to me. They are of John. You are a people of God who belong to God. Why? Because you were chosen by Him. Why? That we would show forth the praises of Him who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. We rejoice in the truth we hear. We rejoice in the truth we see and understand. But you've been shown that truth for a reason. that we might proclaim His glory and His praises. You were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not obtained mercy, but now you have obtained mercy. Our vision, God's vision of this church, starts with understanding that it's not something we've come up with. We've been chosen We've been chosen. I just finished reading the other day again the the wonderful story of Esther. The story where she was, where where, where the Queen Vashti had refused to come into the king when she was supposed to in in a in a banquet, and so he said, you know, we got a problem here, so I'm going to fire the queen and I'm going to appoint another one. So he had the. The, them scour the whole country to come up with the most beautiful virgins that they had and one of them was brought in was a girl named Esther who was a Hebrew and they didn't know she was a Hebrew and it's a long story but I won't go, go through all the details but she finds herself with tremendous favor in the king's eyes and now what happens is through treachery there's a death warrant that's been issued for all of her family for all of her people 
And she has the opportunity because of the favor that was given to her to go before the king and plead for her people. But it's at the risk of her life. And she's, she's, she's human. So she's telling her uncle Mordecai, I, I, you know, you don't understand? This could cost me my life. And he said, perhaps you've been chosen and put in this position for just such a time as this. And he said, by the way, if you don't do it, you're going to die anyway. Because you see, you're trying to be like the queen and you're trying to be like Esther and the ship's being separated from the dock. And then he goes on to say, but if you don't do it, God's going to use somebody else to deliver his people. He will see it done. Faith Christian Center, we've been chosen by God. Many other churches are chosen too. But we've been chosen. You've been chosen to be part of this church so that this church could go and bear fruit, His fruit, and that that fruit could remain. He took fishermen and said, here's what I'm going to do with you. I've chosen you so that you're going to change. You're going to use everything you've learned to do, but you're not going to catch fish anymore. You're going to catch men. You're now going to be fishers of men. You're going to use what you've learned to do for my purpose, no longer just for your purpose. Let's pray. Father, we come to you today humbly, recognizing as we're called back by your word, to recall and understand again, maybe for the first time, that none of us is here because we came to you and convinced you to receive us and accepted us. In fact, your word says that unless you drew us, none of us would come. Your word says that that here in his love, not that we first loved you, but that you loved us. Everything we've done with you has been in response to your love that you've extended to us. We see this morning in your word that you've chosen us, selected us, evaluated what you wanted to do with us and selected us and called us out from the world, from relatives that we have that haven't come yet, from people in our neighborhood, people at work. You've chosen us and called us out of this world, out of the darkness of this world, blessed us with your marvelous light and truth and grace. But that is so we may go and bear fruit for you and for your kingdom. Father, I pray as the Apostle Paul prayed over the church at Ephesus. I pray over Faith Christian Center, over my life and every one of us here this morning, that you would open the eyes of our understanding, that we would truly see the hope of your calling for our life that you gave to us in Christ Jesus. In his name we pray.